Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved, not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me. Bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and we are stuck in a moment. Sarah dropped the phone. Leland's crying. I don't think I mentioned Benjamin coming in yet, so we're stuck in that moment of melodrama and tears and grief. This realization that this family has. And before I continue forward, I wanted to talk about the melodrama, the grief. It's going to be here time and time again, but I haven't talked just about it. This is from Vulture, 19th May 2017. Why Twin Peaks is not the series we're convinced ourselves it was, by Matt Zoller Seats. Among his list, he has number three. Twin Peaks was a meditation on grief and trauma that expressed itself in unrelenting, deliberately unreal, often mystifying ways. People tend to forget this when they talk and write about and remember Twin Peaks. That show did not go down easy. It was charming and weird. But it was also creepy and upsetting and sometimes genuinely horrifying. It gave you a spoonful of sugar, then a punch to in the gut. The gut punches had to do with the psychological effect of loss on individuals in their community. Twin Peaks is often described as a mystery or a soap opera, and it was definitely both of these things. But it was also the story of a small town reeling in shock after a random act of violence, acting out in strange and terrifying ways, and purposefully and accidentally disclosing not just their naughty secrets, an element come to the soaps that Lynch and Frost emulated, as well as films like In the Heat of the Night and Anatomy of a Murder, but the persistent sadness, desperation, and dread that lurks under the surface of mundane reality. The deeper FBI agent Dale Cooper and his fellow investigators dug into the soil beneath those magnificent Douglas firs, the more ugliness they unearthed. There was incest, sexual exploitation, drug abuse, drug trafficking, domestic violence, smuggling, murder, and corporate crime happening in those cottages and hotel rooms and in the gloom of the woods. But more impressive, perhaps more daring, considering Americans' limited tolerance for sincerity, was the show's willingness to plumb the emotional depths of its characters with the white-hot intensity of a 1950s melodrama or a 1970s Italian horror film, without distancing devices, and often without facetiousness or irony. The latter was eerie and moving to behold, and, for 1990 network TV, unexpected. But it was also upsetting and depressing and occasionally confounding for mass audiences, which is one reason why the show's ratings which were immense for the premiere, kept falling by the week, until it became clear a few episodes into season two that ABC was likely to cancel it. Twin Peaks wore the comedy mask and the tragedy mask with equal confidence, and sometimes it put them both away and put on a mask that had live worms in it and might have been made of human flesh. The audience didn't just reject the series over the long haul because viewers wanted closure on the question of who killed Laura Palmer, and Lynch and Frost seemed to be in no hurry to provide it. It was also a reaction to the series itself all of its elements, but perhaps especially the intensity of its darkness. Twin Peaks was not just physically brutal. Leland Palmer's murder of his Laura lookalike niece, Maddie, is still hard to watch nearly three decades after its airing, 
It was also emotionally wrenching in a way that was uncharacteristic of TV in the early 90s. Supporting characters were forever weeping, sometimes wailing in grief as they remembered Laura. It was an open wound of a show right up through the end. The character's pain was hilarious if you were a callow teenager or college student who didn't understand loss and the many equally valid methods by which art can examine it. You have to permit yourself a certain vulnerability when watching Lynch. Otherwise, the simplicity of the character's needs and fears and the nakedness of their desperation will seem hilarious. Viewers over the legal drinking age had to decide to be okay with a certain level of emotional exposure while watching the original Peaks. Twin Peaks was playful about everything except pain. It took pain so seriously that over time an increasing proportion of its initially big viewership did not know how to process it, except to squirm, snicker performatively, or stop watching. Everybody who watches the new Peaks has to recognize this and not be surprised or upset by it. It's going to be part of the package because it's an area of life that is of deep interest to Lynch, the director of such light and peppy movies as Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, and Inland Empire. A 30-something friend of mine quit watching it after a few episodes because his mother had recently died of cancer. Twin Peaks made him feel as if he was re-entering a space he never wanted to be in again. That Twin Peaks is also coming back. Now this article was talking about remembering what the show was before the new one came. And this is a vital part of it. I mentioned that bit from the TV Guide the week of the premiere just a couple weeks ago. Sometimes humor emerges from the darkest moments. The camera lingers so long on the murder victim's mother sobbing over her daughter's death that many who have watched the pilot first get nervous, then laugh from tension. When will this woman quit? I found this interesting piece from Screen, November-December 1986, Melodrama in Tears by Steve Neal. Melodrama emerged on the stage as a consequence of the development of a new theatrical genre, somewhere midway between tragedy and comedy. Among the proponents of this new genre in France was Denis Diderot, who identified one of its major components and pleasures as follows. If to a nation which is known only one sort of play, light and pleasing comedy, one were to propose another, serious and touching, have you any idea what it would think of it, my friend? Unless I am very much mistaken, the intelligent people, after having conceived it as a possibility, would not fail to say, but what use is this new form? Does not life give us enough troubles without our inventing additional, imaginary ones? Why allow sadness to creep into the world, even of our amusements? the remark of one who knows not the pleasure of being touched and giving way to tears. The privilege of the happy, I'd say. I got into looking about soap operas in general and their popularity in the 80s. I know there was a point in the 80s where they were huge. And meanwhile, you had nighttime shows like St. Elsewhere, Hill Street Blues, and nighttime soap operas, of course, that had ongoing storylines. This is from Literary Hub, Lana Devine, 27th February 2020, How the 1980s Soap Opera Craze Changed Television Forever. In 1981, one Washington, D.C. bar owner found a unique way to bring in customers. With his new Betamax recorder, he would videotape General Hospital each weekday afternoon. That evening, during happy hour, he would play the episode on the TV of the Pierce Street Annex, selling drinks to the after-work crowd, eager to follow the events in the fictional Port Charles, New York. Impressed by the turnout, 
the Annex even began playing back the week's five episodes on Sunday, turning its General Hospital marathon into a day-long event, accompanied by food and, when the episodes ended, live music to keep the party going. The customers were working women and men, unable to see the soap during the business day, and drawn to a continuing drama featuring adventure, romance, even science fiction, as Luke and Laura, the super couple at the center of the story, sought to stop the bad guys from freezing the world. The frenzy at the Annex typified the status of the U.S. daytime soap in the early 1980s. With new technologies like VCRs, new social identities like working women, and new trends in soap storytelling, like the fantasy-filled exploits of young romantic pairs, helping daytime drama reach an unprecedented peak in its profitability, popularity, and cultural legitimacy. By 1984, the network's yearly daytime revenues would reach their all-time apex, just shy of $1.25 billion in ad sales. Soaps remained profitable across the decade, but the gradual decline in their earning power from 1984 on would be permanent. Never again would soaps be as lucrative for the networks, or is prominently placed in the American popular imagination. Going back to that TV guide from Premiere Week, there's this. David Lynch bristles when he hears that some people think he is sending up the soap opera. Soap operas to me should not be camp. They are very real characters, he says. The 30-odd townsfolk whose lives will take part in the plot developments all feel and do what they do with all their heart. Camp is not only creative. It is putting yourself above something else that has already been done and poking fun at it. To me, that is a lower kind of humor. Many who have seen Lynch's films, which are known for their often shocking scenes of violence and perversion, may wonder how a filmmaker with his distinct vision could work within the restrictions of television. Surprisingly, he welcomed the challenge. You can't get into certain heavier violence and sexual things that are a part of life, but not a part of TV life, he says but the added time allows you to pay more attention to more characters, and you can concoct an elaborate tapestry of those lives. That is completely thrilling to me. The inclusion, I'd say, of the invitation to love segments, which I understand were specifically made by Mark Frost, not David Lynch, do imply, in a way, that the show is, as Lynch said, sending up the genre. But there is such a thing as deconstructing a genre while reconstructing it at the same time. It's not that they're making fun of it. It's that they are embedding themselves within it. And I thought I'd share this, because it comes back to that Steve Neal article I found. I'll just read it straight from the Wikipedia on soap operas, because it combines references from several sources. The main characteristics that define soap operas are an emphasis on family life, personal relationship, sexual dramas, emotional and moral conflicts, some coverage of topical issues, set in familiar domestic interiors with only occasional excursions into new locations. Fitting in with these characteristics, most soap operas follow the lives of a group of characters who live or work in a particular place or focus on a large extended family. The storylines follow the day-to-day activities and personal relationships of these characters. Soap narratives, like those of film melodramas, are marked by what Steve Neal has described as chance happenings, coincidences, missed meetings, sudden conversions, last-minute rescues, and revelations, deus ex machina endings. <laughs> yeah, that is very Twin Peaks. So what I'd like to say is I don't think the grief in the show is unrealistic. I don't think it's over the top. 
I think for television, it is unusual. But that's because television is limited. Television wants to play things nice. Lynch and Frost, they didn't want to play things nice. That privilege of the happy I mentioned earlier? Yeah. Who is it that watches Twin Peaks? Especially now. It's 2022. The show has been off the air for 30 years. So the people still obsessing about it, people like me, were people that have had our share of depression, anxiety, other mental illnesses. And we live in a world now where, I mean right now, 2022, February 1st as I record this, we live in a world where there is war, poverty, outlandish storms, weather phenomenon, political extremists fucking with each other day in and day out, and depending on where you are, killing each other. Not to mention a global pandemic. So yeah, we expect TV to be nicer than that. But some of the best TV is that that doesn't turn away from it. Remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.